Welcome to a new episode of the Human Era Podcast. My name is Ferry, and in this podcast we talk about what it's like being human in a digital age. And today I am joined by Francisca. Welcome. Hello. Could, <laughs> could you do us a favor and introduce yourself, please? Yes, of course. Um, my name is Francisca. I'm here based in Rotterdam and I'm 25 years old. I study politics, philosophy and economics at the Erasmus University College, also here in Rotterdam. And yeah, my home base is now the Netherlands, but I'm from Munich, Germany. Um, yeah, I love to play tennis and go outside. Maybe that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. And what that's brought me. you what brought you here? Um, so yeah, I guess um, me and Ferry, we met a while ago uh, for a project, um, consulting project um, I was doing for my minor at RSM. And we tried to help Ferry's um, company, <laughs> more or less, to um, yeah give advice where to expand to, etc. And then we met again, actually, um, for a project with Erasmus University, Erasmus X, um, little workshop, and now, yeah, very we meet again. So <laughs> that's great, I guess, that brought me here. It's the third time we're meeting, right? Yeah, the, the, the first time was for that project. Yeah. Um, you did the research on uh, the anti-discrimination tool, right, that, that we were building. Exactly. For We, we tried to make the um, recruiting process, or your, your software is doing that, we help you with the, yeah, making it more humane to and unbiased to recruit new employees. Yeah. Like really unbiased. <laughs> like really unbiased. That's, that's the thing indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Cause what, what we, what we notice is that often when we talk about being unbiased, um, organizations, people, whatever are, are looking at technology to solve that problem. Um, I personally think that humans are the ones solving the problem because the problem actually sits in like the data they use, which is already biased by itself. So if we if we let technology loose on that, we're only going to get more discrimination than we already have. Um, were there any findings in your research that you that you feel you can share today? Um, well, I think one very very interesting um, point in general is just the tricky the trickiness of this bias that is. Uh, present in algorithms and in yeah in algorithms of any kind not only recruiting but also information uh, online platforms etc and that it seems to be there seems to be awareness for this bias but it is not the information is not taking taken further or there's no action taken oftentimes it's like yeah, we know that there is this algorithm and that it can be bad, but why? What can we do about it? It's often not really a thing. That's that was interesting to see because yeah, there's the algorithms are everywhere. It's everywhere. People talk about it, but yeah. We often find the solution in, in more algorithms. Uh, there's this one example, I think I ran into it right after the hackathon I did on anti-discrimination, um, where there's an organization that was using algorithms to get a certain outcome, and the outcome was biased. I think it was biased towards women. Um, I think it was in recruitment as well. So like men were favorable to the algorithm. So instead of... Um, either stopping using the algorithm or trying to fix the entire problem. What they did was they decided to uh, put like an, uh, a score on male and female. So they said, if you're male, then you get points deducted um, in your total score to balance out the fact that you have a privilege when you're going through the algorithm. So that means that every male that went through the algorithm was now being discriminated against based on the fact that they were male to make sure that females that were being discriminated were less discriminated rather than, well, etc. So yeah. what you get is like you get an algorithm fighting an algorithm, fighting another algorithm, uh, just to make sure that it compensates for the entire discrimination going on in the whole thing. Um, so when you roll out as the winner or the best profile, um, you've been through like four filters, all discriminating the people around you, um, which to me sounds insane, but they saw it as a solution. Yeah, it's a, as I said, it's a tricky question, I think, 
because there is a lot of trust in these algorithm solutions for algorithms, I feel like. And I mean, technology solved so many things for us already. So of course there's the trust that also this last bias or discrimination can be solved by technology. But is that so? Um, difficult question. It is. I think I think it, it starts with, with looking at technology as a tool, as something that can help you. Because um, if we look at the past, um, technology has been created to make our lives easier, right? To do heavy lifting or to uh, provide power. I think a, a couple episodes ago, I gave uh, the example of street lighters, uh, lamp lighters. Have you ever heard of lamp lighters? Okay, that's my go-to a uh, go-to uh, subject. Um, so a lamplighter in uh, back in the day, and I mean like really back in the day, um, the street lights were actually candles, and so there were people who had candles on a stick, burning candles on a stick, and they used that to light the street lights, um, which which is li literally how like the, the the streets were were lit um, back in the day, um, and they were replaced by automation by electricity. Um, and nowadays uh, we have sensors that can see when the sun is going down. So, you know, the streetlights have to come on um, and they can be brighter and brighter um, the more dark it gets outside. Um, so that's where technology basically takes over something that is super easy. I mean, you don't have to be a superhuman to light a candle, right? Um, but now we're trying to figure out how technology can replace us and how technology can have a brain for its own. Um, so if you look at um, uh, talking to people in the form of a chatbot or um, technology that is an algorithm that's supposed to determine who is the best candidate for a job or who gets um, a child support, yes or no. Uh, that's an example from the Netherlands, which went completely wrong. Um, <laughs> so now we're trying to use technology to be smarter than we are. And I think that's where the real problem sits. Um, it's the perception of what technology can do and how smart it is. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. <laughs> it is, it is, it. Yeah. I just think it's very um, complex. Um, it's not only the, the factor of it being smarter than us, but also using the weaknesses of us in daily in our daily life um so yeah it is a problem when it comes to offering a service for example recruitment or a chatbot because they are oftentimes not not as good as the human being in communicating and in helping and in showing empathy yeah it's still not a robot is not as good as a human in these things yet but then i also see this other side um where we don't we not even we don't even know and realize that we are confronted with information um that it might be um might put us in a niche or into a box um and even though even though a lot of people know that information they encounter, for example, on a platform side, is probably shown by an algorithm. It's still happening and people still spend a lot of time on social media platforms, et cetera, et cetera. And I also see this as a huge, yeah, huge problem. It's very problematic in my opinion. So there are even like this ad just adds a little bit of a critical, critical side. And what, what makes it a problem in your perspective? Um, so I'm doing some research on um, news perception and sense-making processes um, of young adults about news information or information they encounter. And there is this assumption oftentimes that the young generations uh, mainly inform themselves over social media channels um, and Twitter and Facebook, etc. But what I saw in my sample um, or my participants was that they if you ask about this news information and um, world affairs, politics, etc., these um, people are still very much sticking to this to the traditional mass media side of news and journalism. 
but still they spend so much time on Instagram and read through comments and discussions there, see political content there, content, content there. Um, so they inform themselves, but they wouldn't consciously admit that they do so. And I think that's problematic because you don't even realize how you're influenced by this kind of information. That makes sense. And I think that makes it dangerous. Um, the unconsciousness, which is the same as with recruiting. Um, this company thinks, oh, great, we are now recruiting unbiasedly, but we are not. <laughs> like they don't realize. Yeah, but that's the, the knowledge that people have about how technology works, right? Um, because I can imagine if, if you as a recruiter, you, you um, uh, take a piece of software that can do a part of the recruiting for you, but you don't know how it gets it information and you still get some um, profiles that seem legit, then why would you doubt the technology? Um, so it's also in the understanding of the technology. And But is that also what you mean when you look at like the social media? Because um, you say that like people are being influenced by it, by comments and the social media feed that they have. Like how are they influenced by the technology if we fully understand how it works? I think because even though you know how they know or think they know how it works, it's still so present in, day, in the daily life that you forget. <laughs> so what I mean is, even though you know it's just how it works, you just get this, you just see these kind of information. You just, you're just been put in this sort of bubble and there's nothing you can do as a individual except deleting your Instagram account, for example. Is there no way to get out of your personal bubble? To some extent, there definitely is a way to get out of, of your bubble, for sure. Like awareness, of course, already um, prevents you from being, for example, drawn into a very extreme side. Um, and of course, if you use a multiplicity of sources, um, you also see other sides and other opinions. and. Um, that definitely prevents you from going into a very extreme um, opinion bubble, definitely. Um, but I think indeed in this online environment, it is, you will always be influenced by the, by the algorithm and by your past actions. Because I think a lot of people don't realize how social media actually works. Um, and I think one of the documentaries is The Social Dilemma, which really shows how it works. Um, have you seen that one? No. Really? Okay. Oh, wow. That's right up your alley because that's, that's what this is all about. Um, so in, in that documentary, they explain how social media works. And they take, for example, with elections in the United States, right? Um, so like you said, your future of your, 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 your past actions, they determine... Um, what your feed looks like, the people you connected to, the things you read and like. People often think that they determine um, what they get to see in the sense of if you see a particular uh, video or a photo and you like it, people think they're training the algorithm to um, show those kind of, of contents. Actually, the algorithm isn't really looking at what you're liking per se. It's also looking at what you're doing. Um, and it's also looking at what the people you are connected to are doing. So um, it's going to try and test things on you. So for instance, especially when you look at uh, election time, it's going to show uh, specific feeds or specific uh, posts by people who are thought provoking. Um, it doesn't matter if you like the post or not, but the time you spend on it or the fact that you share it or the fact that you um, engage with it in some way, which could even be just stopping at that post, um, reading it and then scrolling further, that determines what it's going to show you. And with that, it's going to pull you inside of what they call your personal bubble, because um, that's where it kind of forms your opinion. 
Because the problem is that if if you have a couple of uh, posts that you're reading or maybe even, even liking or, or just reading about a certain um, opinion, like uh, being far right or being a leftist or um, supporting some sort of movement, um, it's going to show you more and more content connected to those thoughts. Um, the more you stay connected by reading it or sharing it or whatever, that's going to build your bubble. Um, and ultimately, like you said, people are going to react to those posts. People you like or people you associate with, they're going to share their opinion. And some way that opinion is going to reflect back on you. The more you stay connected to that type of post, the more you're being drawn into that bubble, which is what we've seen with the, the recent pandemic. Um, there were many people that were denying COVID uh, altogether or denying certain things or showing certain uh, news articles, fake news or whatever made up posts, the more they engage with that type of content, the more they're drawn into only seeing that type of content. Um, and the algorithm is actually going to shut off the other voices, um, like the counterparts or, you know, the, the different side of the story. It's only going to show you that side that you've engaged with. And then you're being drawn into further and further. So people that are saying, um, I've looked at my feed and everyone is saying this is because that's true in their perspective. In their bubble, everyone is saying the same thing that they are thinking, but that's because the algorithm understands how their brain works, right? There's probably 99% of people saying different things, but they are not in their bubble. So for them, that bubble is the truth. Um, and that's how social media draws you into your personal bubble. And that's why uh, often people say, um, uh, uh, it really understands me because um, look at my wife, she, she gets posts about clothing and online shopping, etc. Um, that's also part of her personal bubble, right? Because the algorithm understands if I show you this type of content, you're going to engage with it. It's going to show me different content. Uh, so my online world is completely different from hers, even though we share everything and we do basically the same things. Um, and, and that's that bubble, what they talk about. Yeah. yeah, I think the most interesting part or a very yeah interesting part, at least, is the fact that this algorithm, of course, is not designed to draw you into a bubble. Like it's not a malicious uh, algorithm that's like, oh yeah, let's cause some polarization. Great. <laughs> no, it's, it's the fact that the algorithm is designed in a way to keep you as long on the platform as possible. So obviously it will show you the content that you consume the most the content you spend the most time on and that where we, that's how we get this yeah this uh, side effect of polarization or uh, someone spending hours of their day shopping on social media um, or watching dog reels um and that's actually only a side effect. It's not targeted by anyone. No one thought about this consciously, really. It's really just about making money. And that's, uh, I think that's a very problematic thing, in my opinion, that on these platforms, the corporate values are mixed up with maybe the real life and more democratic values we would value in real life. Mm. That was a weird sentence, but <laughs> and I hope you know what I mean. Mm. Like money-making goals are mixed up with wider, larger societal consequences and or individual. Like, of course, it's also not a good thing for you as an individual if you spend more money because you see these posts all the time and you're very um, easily convinced to buy. Also problematic for an individual, but also on a societal level. But I think that the, the underlying issue with that is that um, social media is free. And once it's free, it means you are the product. Um, and although I agree that the algorithm isn't created to be malicious and, and target you to be some sort of uh, freedom fighter or, or whatever opinion people get from it, um, it is created to um, make money and use psychology because the algorithm doesn't understand anything. It's not a human being with a conscious mind, um, but it is created to draw in people and draw in money and keep your attention. 
Um, and also what they said in, in the documentary as well is that it uses nudges, right? It knows exactly how to trigger you to pick up your phone and go back to social media if you've been away for too long of a time. Um, companies do that as well. They, they use it because they know it works. Um, and again, that's to make money, which is all what a company is about. You need to make money. But the thing is that oftentimes the organizations using it don't really know how the algorithm works and what the implications can be of using those social media platforms. Uh, because ultimately there's also people on there with with certain problems, right? I think what, one of the examples that, that, I, that I often use on stage, so if, if anyone's seen me there, you've probably heard this before, uh, but we often take the example of uh, Las Vegas, right? The, the gambling capital of the world. Um, so imagine that you have um, a company selling plane tickets to Las Vegas, right? You have this travel agency. Um, and you use social media advertising to get customers for a flight to Las Vegas. Um, you might say, I've got a demographic of people 25 to 45. Um, and I imagine them being young people, uh, honeymooners, maybe friends that want to go on a trip to, to Las Vegas, whatever. Um, and you ask the algorithm, basically you ask social media, go find me customers, sell, sell my tickets. Um, and we presume that it's just going to find the people that we envision, right? The young, fresh people, conscious, etc. The thing is that the algorithm is only looking at drawing your attention and drawing your money from you. So it's going to find um, weaknesses in people's, um, um, uh, how do you say that? Um, well, it's going to find a weakness in a person. Like, how can I trigger you to buy that ticket? The thing is that if you show... Um, uh, online movement, say you're on uh, poker.com 24-7 and you visit many gambling websites, um, the algorithm is actually going to recognize you as being a potential client because it sees Las Vegas um, as a gambling uh, uh, city. Uh, it, it, sees, it sees gambling as one of its main components, right? doesn't even know it's a city. It just sees gambling. Then he sees you as someone who is an avid gambler and he's going to connect it to so you are probably likely to purchase those tickets and fly to Las Vegas because you like gambling. The thing is that you may have a gambling addiction because you're on poker 24 uh, seven, uh, you go to many gambling websites, so you might have an addiction, um, but the algorithm doesn't care because he sees that weakness and he's gonna try and trigger you into purchasing those tickets. So now your travel agency has sold tickets to the gambling capital of the world to a gambling addict. Which, if you ask me with my moral compass, um, I wouldn't agree with this. Because if I'm talking to you face to face and I discover this, I'm not going to try and sell you those tickets because I know it's a weakness and I'm not going to abuse it. The algorithm doesn't have a moral compass, doesn't have a soul, doesn't know what you are, who you are, doesn't even know what gambling is or what an addiction is. But it is going to try and manipulate you into purchasing those tickets. And that's where I see the problem. I agree. I agree with this. This is definitely, of course, problematic when it comes to products. That's also problematic when it comes to um, other addictions. Like, um, I don't know, maybe you have a specific anxiety or you have... Um, now, anxiety is maybe, yes. Uh, let's say you have a... Um, eating disorder and you um, use Instagram and you get triggered, um, but you also watch this content a lot. Like it's, yeah, of course, the, the algorithm will never know that this particular content is problematic for you. Um, I think, however, if it comes to like the platforms we've been talking about, maybe the problem is not that they are free. Maybe they should be free, but publicly owned, for example, or I don't know, connected or yeah, being online with some sort of blockchain technology thing. Um, <laughs> like, I don't necessarily think that a paid platform would solve the problem, to be honest. I don't think paying for the platform is the solution either. Um, but I do understand that um, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok can only be free for the users if they're being targeted and bombarded with advertisements. 
Yeah. And these advertisements are triggered by an algorithm that understands how our brain works. At least it doesn't even understand. It just knows how to trigger people into doing something particular like purchasing a product or buying a service. Um, so and if the platform would not need to make that much money, yeah, then there would be less. Like it would be a platform for a platform's sake to connect with people, to exchange opinions or post some pictures. That there's nothing wrong with that, at least not in the sense we're talking about it right now. Um, but yeah, if you have to make money as Instagram or Facebook, I mean, it's the same now, right? <laughs> um, then, then you need to get this money from somewhere. True. And I think it's still a good business model in the sense that we've always been doing this, right? I mean, getting a free magazine back in the day also meant, you know, going through pages and pages of advertisements, um, which are still created to be enticing and, you know, trigger us into buying something. Um, but just in a different way, because there was a lot less artificial intelligence behind it. Um, because if you uh, had like a cigarette brand or McDonald's or whatever, um, you recognize the colors, they have good uh, artwork, um, they know how to trigger you. Uh, even McDonald's using the color red to trigger your hunger, um, because red ultimately um, uh, triggers a hungry feeling. Um, using yellow for richness, <laughs> using the golden arches because it's fancy. Well, you know, so yeah. they, they do know how to manipulate us into buying something, um, but that wasn't as aggressive with technology. Um, and sure, you can still fall for for that type of advertising, but it's not as, as scary in a sense. Yeah, exactly. I agree. It's not as scary because it doesn't have that much. It didn't have as much consequence as it is now because these platforms are a part of everyone's daily life. And McDonald's, of course, had bad consequences because people started to eat more fast food, which is unhealthy. But you didn't, you were not confronted with it permanently. And yeah, I think that's a problem, being confronted with algorithmic patterns all day long, definitely. And it's not adaptive, right? Because it's not following me around the whole day. Because they can have an advertisement in a magazine and I can fall for it and I can go for bad food or fast food or whatever. Um, sure, that can happen and they can still probably trigger me in some way, but it's not going to follow me around. It's not going to look at my Instagram usage and exactly know where to place an advertisement for me to most likely see it or you know oh i know you're hungry around seven so i'm gonna show you at 10 10 past seven or you know so it's not gonna gonna uh, try and learn um the details about me my life and my internet usage it's just an advertisement which i can skip and leave behind um, so that's the scary part behind it it's gonna yeah, it follow you it's not it's it's not your it doesn't know your individual individual life or personality um yeah, it's scary. It's definitely scary. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. No, but it's 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 part of life, right? I mean, it's it's everywhere. Um, and I just to to get back at what you said before, um, like you don't have to pay for a platform. Um, I I do still think that if the platform is free, you are the product because you're you're gonna get sold to. Um, they still need to make money to keep the pro the the platform alive, right? Which which makes a lot of sense. Um, but one of the things that I think Elon Musk now said is he purchased or he's, he's going to purchase Twitter um, and he wants to make it a decentralized organization so that the masses, the, the users determine where the company is going to go next, um, which means that certain ideas can be stopped by the masses, uh, which would go into, into blockchain. Uh, how would you look at that type of solution? Maybe it's too deep. I'm not sure. But how, how would you look at that? Um. I haven't read about this yet, um, and I think it highly depends on how how exactly he wants to put this into practice. If he's gonna advertise a new tool or new function, and people can vote, I don't know if this will have a real effect on the on the agency of the people. To be honest. Um, and if the, if the ground, the basic principles of the platforms will stay, platform will stay the same, 
then I don't think it will change a lot, to be honest. It's just, uh, of course, it's a trend to talk about these algorithms and it's in ev it's everywhere in research and uh, in the media, the, the documentary you were talking about. So, yeah, I can also imagine that it's a little bit of a nice try <laughs> <laughs> for the media, maybe. Uh, so, but I didn't read about that, so I don't know how he really wants to put it into practice. Um, but I think if the if the grounding the ground basic principles of the of Twitter will just stay as they are, it's going to be the same. The post with the most likes is the um, most popular one will be seen the most, and these posts are the most extreme ones. So a, a basic post about oh yeah I agree agree actually with how this is going will never <laughs> will never ever just get likes or will be shared or retweeted um yeah but that's so just how yeah, life works that's, right that's, that's, that's the, stays the same i think it's a little bit of a show i'm i'm not i'm not sure um but that's because i i don't know the full details of how that's this is going to play out um he did however say that he first of all is going to get rid of uh, all these bots that are in there like spam bots um, and he's going to verify human beings. So he just wants it to be a platform run by humans without the manipulation of all these algorithms trying to force certain uh, opinions down our throats. Because that's often how it works, right? With these spam bots and they up the posts and we get to yeah. see them. So he wants to get rid of them and then make it a DAO, uh, a decentralized autonomous organization um, mm -hmm. using smart contracts where the users can determine where it's going to go. And then on the blockchain, it's going to be um, everyone's going to have a voice um, in the future of the organization. Um, and, and the only thing is, and, and I had the discussion, I think it's in like the, the first episode of, of this podcast um, about these type of new organizations. Because um, I'm curious how you look at this, um, just to make it a very like basic principle. So for people listening who are not really into like the crypto part, um, what they want to do is like decentralize many organizations, which is part of Web3, right? Web1 being the internet as a source of information, Web2 being platforms like Instagram and Facebook, where you can be a content creator or a consumer or both. Um, Web3 is more of building communities and giving power back to the people to say that. Um, but now I still have the feeling that there's going to be big organizations that are going to sit in between somewhere. Um, and what I mean by that is if you look at the ideas, for example, behind the metaverse, that should be like an open open platform, just like the real world where, pe where people can interact and build and trade and, and do anything. Um, but to have a platform to have tools and software and et cetera, services, I think there's still going to be big corporations sitting be between it, um, still using those open platforms to make money uh, and to still determine where these are going. So I don't, I, I still have trouble believing in like decentralizing and, and giving the power back to the consumer. How, how, how would you look at that? Um, I think it's a great idea. And I know it's also uh, widely discussed in politics as well. Um, and there are also predictions of, yeah, decentralizing basically everything also politics um, with these technologies. Um, I don't really see that, I just don't really see that happening yet, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I also think like also logistically with all the servers and everything, it would need so much space and energy. Like this is also a very big question mark. In my opinion, where would you even have this capacity from um, to run the servers that already cover a lot of uh, space and area? And it could, maybe it develops and also develops in a way that it is easier to understand and easy to use because of course it should be if everyone is supposed to participate. But right now I, I think there's a lot of potential, but I don't know how far it will go. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe but. it should be on like a lower scale that we do have more of a say in where certain things are going. 
Um, because what I what I feel, and that's that's where I think the decentralizing part, uh, other than the technical side of it, like indeed having server capabilities, which is just too huge for now to imagine. Um, I mean, there's this project that is trying to replicate the entire world um, where everyone can be live at the same time. It's not going to be done because we don't have the capabilities. Um, but other than that, I think I don't even know if I want everything controlled by the masses. Um, and what I mean by that is that many good things and many technological developments, but also non-technological developments come from people with a certain vision, like visionary people who think differently than many people do. Um, like people who are super intelligent, like Bill Gates or like Elon Musk. Um, they do things that we can support. They do things that we might not support, but they do have a certain vision and a certain, I mean, like brain capacity or for, for some reason, they're super smart, right? So they, they develop things that help us further. Uh, for instance, the iPhone. I mean, it's an example. You, you can have one. You, you, you might not have one. You can hate them. You can love them. But they bring so many new things um, to the table. But if we let everything be done by the masses, it kind of feels like we're going back to the Stone Age where we kind of like sit around the table and, you know, try and recreate things. And then in the Stone Age, there was also one person who had a great idea and then they started creating things. Um, so I, I think to bring innovations forward, you still need visionary people rather than the masses just, you know, inventing things. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a complex question or assumption because, of course, um, it's, it will always be, there will always be the people who have great ideas who will bring society forward. Um, and it's always hard to have everyone to decide, decide things. Like, that would be a very, very, very impractical thing in some sense to have everyone decide on everything. But still, there there's probably room for a model that would give certain people more say in things and thus make societies more equal than now. To what extent and to what extreme this is realizable uh, is, of course, the question. And also, um, with just what came to my mind with the great ideas and visions, of course, they can be great and they can bring society forward, but they can also do harm. So I think that it's always problematic if one person has one vision. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but I think that could be backed up by the masses, right? Um, but what I mean, like, if you have this like perfect example or perfect idea of decentralized, it would mean like there's a problem. You have a thousand people, and those thousand people are gonna decide for a solution or where the thing should be taken to. I I don't think that's gonna work. I would think that if you have like one or two or three people with a great idea who are visionary and they are backed by the 997 people um, in that same group and then you know get to a consensus with the whole group rather than you know having a thousand voices a thousand opinions i, I think I mean, that would the, integrate people right the best the best option would be that there wouldn't be that the, the ideas would come from below you know that there's not this one person that has the vision but the vision kind of develops because people talk, because people um, communicate, because, yeah, they also are engaging with each other. And then this vision would be maybe legitimized in different ways and not in a different way that we know now, you know, that could be an alternative. But I agree, like, of course, this does not, should not mean that new things are not taken further anymore. Well, it, you know what I mean? I, I do, I do, yeah. I, I think you're, you're looking for a way to integrate more voices um, into like, the, you know, include more people in certain aspects of life or in certain projects or innovations. Which would make, yeah, which would maybe happen naturally if the chance is, if, if the chance arises. 
And then you maybe wouldn't even have this problem of a lot, a, a huge negative um, attitude towards this really great visionary idea. Maybe then it would be um, just evolved that this is the best way to do in this particular situation. Yeah, that makes sense. But I, I think this is very, we are f very far away um, <laughs> from this right now. So um, we will see if, if the technology is really integrated. Because I know, for example, governments are looking into it. And is this something that you see in your in your own studies, or or is are you studying something completely different? Um, no, <laughs> not completely different. <laughs> we definitely look into ways of how how societies work, how people can um, live together, and maybe better in this way and like how we live now but how could it be also maybe completely different so we try to come up with solutions for practical problems as well for example even like algorithms and face recognition the problems with that um so i definitely kind of engage with these questions also at university in my studies um which are over soon. That's so sad. <laughs> um, and it's very interesting. Um, it's very interesting. What would you say is a problem with facial recognition? Like what in your findings? Um, that's nothing I look into with my bachelor thesis. But what like, what I see problematic with it is, for example, Often in the US, you have the um, areas, or you have uh, a lot of security. I don't, I forgot the name. They have the cameras and try to detect yeah. criminals. CCTV? Before. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And yeah, if you want to detect a criminal before you even before the crime even happened you need to feed this algorithm with some information of how a criminal looks and this can be very biased in a way that a specific for example ethnicity or primarily male people are targeted or if you have the, the a black person um who's just as innocent as any other person walking into the shop being checked, but not the white person. I think that's problematic. And it's even legitimized by this CCTV and um, by this algorithm, which, yeah, I don't agree with. Yeah, it, that's, but that's the, the biggest danger, I think. Um, in that sense, if you're trying to use algorithms, technology to um, form an opinion or be preventative for something based on human behavior. Um, I think I've actually seen this example. I think someone had it in a keynote uh, during that hackathon, that anti-discrimination hackathon, um, where they explained how the system that the police had in some state in the United States, um, that they were trying to have this predictive algorithm for certain neighborhoods where a crime like you said a crime could occur so what they wanted to do is have more units available in that area to make sure that if a crime were to occur then they would be there faster so the chances of getting a burglar or whatever would be higher which kind of makes sense you want to predict where something's going to happen right so what they did was they feed the algorithm with information based on um, a bad neighborhood or people who look like people who might be bad people, if you know what I mean. Um, but the thing is that the algorithm is fed with historical data, data which is created by former police officers, by current police officers. The thing that happened was that if you have a police officer who is biased against black people, Mexican people, whatever minority is in a certain neighborhood, if they are biased against those people, they are going to stop them more often. They're going to check them more often. They are going to be registered in the system, not based on evidence or facts, 
but based on the fact that they are being stopped more often by certain police officers. The only thing that the algorithm is going to do is look at patterns, which is, ah, I see a lot of Mexican people in this neighborhood being arrested before or stopped by the police. So these are probably people who are going to commit crimes. So we're going to have a lookout for these type of people. Also, they are often stopped in this neighborhood. So that's probably a bad neighborhood, which also means that if you are from that neighborhood, even if you have never committed a crime in your life, you're still marked as a potential criminal because you are from a neighborhood where often criminal Mexican people have been arrested. Um, and that's how that algorithm is fed, which is insanely dangerous. I think, and I think the interesting part here is that the, it's not the algorithm's fault. Mm -hmm. It's the fault of people, yeah. of the biased people who fed, feed the algorithm. So it's actually a human made problem and i think it's important to point that out because it's it's not the malicious algorithm mm -hmm. it is the people who design it and that can be very harmful and it just pinpoints at the fact that maybe we are not <laughs> or a lot of people some people are not ready to design an unbiased algorithm because they themselves are very much biased yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, that's actually interesting to keep in mind that it's humans who design it in the first place. It is. Look, and the, profiling is, of course, in general problematic, probably. But it's human behavior because every human being has a certain bias. Could be against anything. We, we all have it. You can do an online test. You will find out you have a bias. I have one as well. I'm not going to tell you which one, um, but I have a bias. But the thing is, it's that's okay. Um, the only thing the algorithm is actually doing is um, making that bias stronger, but not on purpose. It's just looking for patterns, which is what an algorithm is created for. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the bias, so the mistake, the fault is already in the data, which is created by human beings. Based on natural behavior, sometimes on malicious behavior, because you can be a racist, uh, yeah. you can be a racist by choice and you're still going to contaminate the data, the algorithm is not going to contaminate the data. It's just going to show you contaminated data. Mm. And I think that's that's the biggest biggest yeah. difference. Um, but, but we need to understand how the algorithms work in order to make sure that we can use them yes or no. So if we know that we want to have an algorithm to prevent crime, which is a good idea, but you're going to use historical data based on a lot of police officers who might be biased, then it's not a good idea. Yeah, it's scary what it can do it is yeah especially if we fully trust it and not know how it works because uh, that and happened it, here right you, you you probably heard that like the tax administration in the netherlands yeah yeah so that you know the the, the algorithm deciding who who is a fraudulent person and yeah. who is not and based on your social background and the neighborhood you're from and it's the, the same ki kind of mistake um and the decision wasn't made by the algorithm the algorithm is just finding patterns. The decisions was made by humans. The data was created by humans. That's where the mistake lies. Yeah, it's, in it's, it's interesting because all my participants in my study for my um, thesis also mentioned that incident, and they are all aware of it. They are also, I interviewed students, so they had um, all the same um, academic background. So they are also a little bit educated about it however they all didn't really know how what to do with this information because you know it you are aware of it you also are aware of you being a victim of it but what is the what is the follow-up action that's i think a big cliffhanger in all the interviews I conducted for my study, like, okay, I know it, I, I try to be aware of it, but in the end, there's nothing I, how I could stop it. And I think transparency is a first, is a good step into the, the right direction and education about it. And I think incidents like the tax affair sadly happen but they make people aware of it more and also raise awareness probably for the people who design the algorithms to be more careful. And I think that's definitely already a step in the right direction, but it's 
because it's everywhere, there's a lot of work to do and a lot of awareness to put into, yeah, into designing them also in health insurance in, yeah, things, sensitive things and decisions like this. I think it's also based on trust um, in the sense that we, we cannot trust technology to do the same thing that we would do. Um, also in the sense that technology, algorithms, whatever you call it, doesn't have a moral compass. So it's not going to tell you what is right and what is wrong. Um, so we humans should always at least be on it and understand what the outcome is of a certain algorithm. Uh, what's the information it's going to give us? What is the decision it's made and how did it make that decision? what data was used and what are the potential dangers. Um, so I always say I'm not against anything. I'm pro-humans and pro-technology, but they should both work in their own strong suit. Um, so it's, it's, it's awesome if you can create technology to make faster, better decisions, um, but you need to understand how those decisions were made. Are they trustworthy? Are they non-discriminatory? So that, that's where it starts. Um, once you're in it, then you're, there's no way back. Um, but if, if I look at that specific case of the tax administration, I would say um, stop using this algorithm and first figure out how the decisions were made. And maybe you should still have a professional human being on it for now because technology isn't smart enough to get this to the same outcome without being discriminatory because the data isn't ready for it. I agree, and I, I would add here that it's important to realize that technology is not neutral. It's not, it's, we often pretend it is, but it is not. Even a device like the phone, that the smartphone is not neutral, has been there for, for many years now, but it's still, its meaning for us still evolves. So it was first to, to call and to text with people, but now, we book our bus with it, or we do our banking on it, like the meaning evolves. And it's, yeah, it's, I think, important to keep in mind also with, with algorithmic and algorithms in general that it's never neutral. It's how, what we make of it, how we use it, the level of awareness in using it. Um, there's more than just, the device and more than just the function. Well said, <laughs> really well said. What is, but it, it, it yeah, it, it resonates because in the beginning of mobile phones, um, especially when you were able to pay with them, didn't really trust them. If I wanted to make a purchase, say, say I was at work, um, sorry, former employer, uh, when I was at work and I was looking at some shops or whatever, um, I was never gonna purchase it from my phone. I would then email myself the link or whatever, go home, go on my laptop and make the purchase because I don't trust my phone or whatever. Um, now I'd book a holiday on my phone. I'd spend a couple thousand euros on my phone. I don't care because I, it's, I, would, I would probably do it faster on my phone than I would on my, on my laptop. Um, I don't know. It's just evolved. I kind it of evolved. like trusted it more. Yeah. yeah it, and it, it evolved. And I think that's the interesting part, like looking at technology in general. Um, often people are like, yeah, technology, that's cool. Like there's this new thing and did it, it, but it's not only a thing, it has meaning attached. And it also, the way we use it evolves. And therefore, yeah, sometimes we forget about a technology that is fine, but sometimes it's like taking over more of our lives than we would ever have anticipated. With Alexa, for example, or <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. Now our house is even connected to our phone. So that's of course a different relationship to the phone you use just, just to call a friend in the beginning or send an SMS. Mm -hmm. yeah. like, <laughs> What's well, an SMS again? That was the coolest thing at some point and now no one does it. Yeah. It, that's true, uh, but that happens with so many things that we're we're used to, and and at this point we cannot imagine not doing something. I cannot imagine not using email for work, but I'm pretty sure in the near future we're not going to use email for work anymore, um, especially younger generations who hate email. Uh, you you can see it by with phone calls already. When when I started my career in 2009, I think um, my my job, I think 80% of my job was calling people on the phone, which was like the most common thing ever. 
used to call my grandpa as well, my parents, etc. Nowadays, when my phone rings, I kind of get anxiety, like oh, my phone. Okay, so what am I supposed to do? I'm pick it up and then talk to someone. <laughs> Can you not send me an SMS or a WhatsApp message? Um, so that's that's evolving as well. Yeah. I'm like stepping away from from that source of uh, that media. Yeah. Oh my god, I thought about that recently. That's funny. Like I thought, oh, I like calling people, but like one, only one out of ten times people actually pick up when I call, and that's kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty no, sad. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. It's um, but that's also the as. I don't want to say scary, but it is a little bit scary because of now, in a, like, even though we make all these hypotheses now and talk about these things, it could evolve completely different than to what we think because there is this one idea and suddenly everyone uses this function and we all just, I don't know, all stay at home and just do home office uh, always. For yeah. example. It, it could happen or maybe the metaverse will bring in digital meetings um, because many many offices are already going into hybrid mode like they're doing online and offline combined um, and even things I, I never imagined I like I said I've, I've I ran my business for a couple of years and it was always like the most normal thing to have a business email address um, like it's my first name at and then business name um, but now a couple of days ago I got a, a whatsapp message from a client uh, inviting me to send them a quotation for a new project through WhatsApp. Um, it's it's really hard to imagine, but th that's the reality of today. Um, he's about my age, somewhere like mid-30s, so am I. So, so we're now using WhatsApp on our mobile phone to get to a deal on business level, which is, to me, it's insane. Usually that went through email or physical meetings or now it's just WhatsApp. It is exactly the the... The thing with individualization, right? It gets more and more to your to your individual life. Because now yeah. The 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 borders kind of it becomes a blur. It's more individualized, more personal, more personal. But maybe I just want to not maybe I don't want to be personal with my work. Maybe that's my work and I want to get go home and not get messages on my phone. Of course you have a work phone most likely but yeah i see this trend of everything must be personalized everything must be as individual as possible i must reach my this company at any time if i have a request um but why like why well I, there's it's, a lot of information behind that right it's a very I think it's a thin line between convenience that is really necessary and convenience that makes people just consume more and demand more from consumption and also from companies they buy off. Like I don't need to, need to call the customer service at 1 a.m. It's not necessary, theoretically. Mm -hmm. it, I would argue. Some. It, it should be a, it should be a choice, and I think it should fit the brand of the organization as well. Um, it also depends what it is. I want to reach my insurance company about my car if I have car trouble. I want to reach them twenty four seven, which I can, which I can. Um, if if there's something wrong with the delivery of new shoes. I don't care. I'll call you tomorrow. The shoes are not gonna come at three in the three in the morning anyway, so I don't need your your customer service right now. So I I think it also depends on like what type of organization do you have. Um, Definitely. I, yeah. yeah and, but it should also be a choice, right? Because if you work in customer service and you work, you're forced to work at nights. You might think, why am I here right now talking to people about shoe deliveries in like three or four days? Um, but like I said, with the with the WhatsApp message that I got. Um, it was my personal decision to look at that message, uh, to do something with that message, but that's because it's my company. So I want to work whenever I want to. It, it could also happen that I'm not working at 11 in the morning just because I don't feel like it. Um, but that's, <laughs> but that's my personal choice, right? Um, if, if I've worked Saturday and Sunday, I might not be in the mood to work on Monday, but that's, that's all because it's a personal decision that I can make. So I can, I can also not look at these WhatsApp messages. Um, 
at night. But then it's yeah, a personal my, decision. It, because it still can be a personal decision. But if there are more companies that are like yours and the other offer to be that, that they can be contacted by a WhatsApp at any time, then I guess you would kind of feel pressure to do so as well because otherwise you have a disadvantage. It, that's that's true, but I, I think that that still sits in the um, organization as well, yeah, in the culture. I've, I've had a corporate job where we, we had email and phone, like 20, 2014 something, we had email and phone. I still felt pressured when I left at six or seven in the evening, even though they stopped paying me for three hours. I still felt pressured because people were still there answering emails that were not urgent, working for clients that were not urgent. Um, but it's just the culture of working yeah. more hours. That means you're more productive, which means you're more of an asset to the company. Um, when I started leaving at five, because they stopped paying me at five, um, th that's the first thing that they said to me. Um, like you're always leaving on time. Um, so <laughs> you're leaving on time, right? Which is an offense. It's um, the race um, about who stays longest. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. The, whoever leaves last is the best employee, whatever. Yeah. Um, and the thing is that um, I, I, once I, I was called into the office because I entered at like three past nine because I was talking to a colleague somewhere downstairs. They didn't see me behind my desk. So they assumed that I wasn't working. Um, they, they never said, well, thank you for staying until like 7.30 in the evening. Uh, but that's because it's normal. But don't come in three minutes after nine because then you're officially late. Um, but that's part of the culture. Um, and so it, it, people can still email me at eight in the evening. If I don't reply to those emails, then I'm slacking and I'm not the best employee ever, blah, blah, blah. Um, if I do respond, then I'm perfect because I reply to an email at eight in the evening. So it's still a personal choice, um, which made that I didn't fit in that culture, which is why I left. Um, but it is part of the culture. So you, yeah, you do feel bad if you want to be part of that culture. You need to do those things if you want to fit in. And then, then it's not a personal choice and then it becomes a problem. What is your personal expectation of how this culture will develop with new generations joining the job market? They're going to have the hardest time ever to keeping people inside. I think people are going to stay there, do a project, figure out what the culture is like and then leave. For sure, because I already saw that happening, because once I left, like two or three co-workers left, all with burnouts, um, told me that the culture sucked and that they never wanted to work in such a company again. And they wow. were kind of like my generation and we still take a lot of shit. Basically, younger yeah. generations are not going to put up with that. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> just my perspective. I don't have any facts to back it because I know like you're into research and, you know, having data. But it's just a gut feeling that young people, younger generations, they're not going to come into your corporate organization stay until eight in the evening get paid until five um, and then stay for 20 years that's not going to happen you're, yeah, you're going to lose I'm, so much talent i'm very curious about that to be honest me too we'll see, but i also i agree i think there, there will be a lot of changes and i think that it already now things change more uh, than yeah more than like I don't have a lot of friends who really who are eager to work their 80 hours a week or something. 80 is a bit much, but like you know what I mean. But yeah, and I think in the end the outcome is probably the same. Yeah. Long term. Long term, yeah, for sure. But you you already see these studies where like uh, um, entire companies that go to a four four day work week or six hours per day max. These people are more productive <laughs> because they have more rest as well and they feel less pressure to be there at nine because they're already closed at four. Um, so you cannot even be there um, to show how good you are. Um, I think that's a good development. That's uh, cool. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. I think it was Sweden or something that tried yeah. it, like the four day work week or something. Yeah, I heard about it. I don't know what happened with it. I don't know if they really do that. I don't think they do, which kind of surprises me because the results were pretty good, but maybe the effects on the economy were bad i don't know but it, it always feels <laughs> <Probably>. like <yeah. laughs> if, i don't know if there would be interesting to look into yeah i i personally feel like 
like we we should step away from the nine to five anyway uh not everyone is productive between nine and five some people work best at night i know a lot of people who do creative work which they enjoy doing during the night when everyone's in bed because the world is quiet and they have more focus why would we want to force them to come into the office at nine and then not be productive at all you know tank up on coffee and hope that they can produce something that is worthwhile while they would be at their best during evenings. I mean, I think that that would come down, boil down to like outcome and output over being present, I think. No, I agree. I, I just think like there are also models that are very flexible for, for workers, but in, at the same time, they, like you as an employee, have maybe a harder time to um, shut down after work that makes sense because of course if you're very autonomous and you can choose whenever to to work whenever you want you have so many benefits and you're so flexible for some people that's also a disadvantage because they have a hard time to then separate their work from their private life and it kind of melts into each other so it i think it's a very very personal thing and that therefore it's difficult to really find a like a model for everyone but maybe a hybrid system is cool or the option to make it more flexible, but also people who like to have the structure and the office, they can come in every every day from nine to five or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting, that topic, honestly. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and also, um, when I pick my employer or someone picks me <laughs> Then um, yeah, of course it, it will also play a role of how I'm. The, uh, it will depend on the mode of working and the team and the culture. I think for people in my generation, it is very important to feel comfortable and still productive, of course, at work, but also just a good dynamic and inspiring people around you. Yeah. Big big part of the choice i think it comes down to culture again like how do you work with people what is your culture what what is seen as successful what is unsuccessful are you successful working 12 hours per day or are you successful having fun enjoying your work being productive happy having happy clients just depends on how they look at culture i think yeah no i agree we, we can we can go on for hours but i think we, we passed the hour mark um so, so be, before before i close down um can i ask you for a final thought for us could be anything a final thought anything <laughs> yeah of course um i just think um that it's gonna that the, the next coming years will be very interesting um, regarding the topic we discussed in the ha- first half of the discussion. Um, and I'm, I think it's nice that these topics are already discussed a lot, like algorithms and the effects. And I think exactly these effects will play a big role in private, public, and also private in the sense of individual lives um, in the next coming years. So um, there will be a lot, a lot of room for more um, episodes. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. good to hear. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for your final thought. Also, thank you for, for joining me today and being, uh, being the guest uh, of this show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. And for you at home listening, thank you. Stay tuned and stay human.